July 5th here. This is Market Call. I'm Dan Nathan. That is Carter Braxtonworth. Uh, this is Market Call. Um, here we go, guys, people. This is directed uh, to you on a holiday shortened week, uh, Carter. So I like holiday shortened weeks. Those here. Are always, really yes. appreciate it. But we also have to thank our sponsor and our data provider. That would be FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by DeMar. You can see that Guy Adami is not here. But you and I are going to do some heavy lifting. You and I are going to do so much heavy lifting. We decided just to wear T-shirts today because here in New York City, it is like it 100 is degrees. Blister. Um, yeah, man. So so here's the thing, Carter. These these weeks are kind of funky, um, you know, and, and I just want to take a step back because yesterday was July 4th. It was, um, you know, our nation's birthday here. And you had a tweet. I, I, I didn't see the tweet. I actually got this in email form from your your charting service, but but this is really awesome. And 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 speak to this a little bit here because you're basically saying that it never gave you anything other than a name uh, for all intents and purposes. But your grandfather's great 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 grandfather signed the Declaration of Independence in 1776. Talk to us a little bit about this because this is really fascinating and it was really interesting. I did go to the Twitter and I did look at a lot of the responses, and it's just uh, it's just a great it's a great piece of history. I mean, yeah, so but just to put in context, I guess at the time, right, it's a much smaller place, of course, um, but it's it would be the equivalent of the most prominent people right now, 50, there were 56 signers, getting together and saying to the United States of America, we're, uh, we're going to go a separate way. So who would that be? I guess that would be Madonna or maybe George Soros or, uh, you know, uh, uh, any other big hedge Harrison Ford, or, maybe. Harrison Ford or Mick Jagger, you know, pick, pick whatever it is. But basically, these were the prominent, very wealthy um, individuals, and they took a big chance, right? Because the, the, the punishment for treason, of course, is you get killed. And yeah. At least my understanding, you know, there's sometimes you get a guillotine or you get hanging. But really, the nasty way they did it was you were quartered, which means you have four horses and all four of your limbs are connected by oh. ropes and the four horses just start walking in different directions. That is nasty stuff. That's um, what they, they call risking life and limb. Is yes, that where that probably literally. comes from? Now, in a way, of course, it, it uh, not in a way, it's the greatest IPO of all time. America is the greatest success story, bar none, right? And so... Uh, but, you know, it didn't go all that well for a lot of the uh, signers. A lot of them uh, put a great deal of their money into the war fighting the king, and a lot of them died uh, being hunted down and so forth. But independent of all that, uh, I just perchance happened to my mother, my grandfather, was named Carter Braxton, his father, his father. And there's the signer who was from Virginia. They signed by state, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, that's why they're in those groups. But anyway, I, I was trying to make a point that it doesn't, it's not me. <laughs> they never got me one token on the, on the subway ride or an extra boost on the exam. But I think it is important to stand up for what you believe in, regardless of uh, the risk. If I, you can. I, I agree with that because you know we talk about like all these little like little battles that are being fought on social media every day about the goofiest crap that people want to get involved with. When you look at that, you know, like like for us to be able to just be here and be able to have those sorts of conversations, whether they be in person, whether they be online. Um, it took those events back there in 1776. I also say I was in a library this weekend. I was in Hancock, Maine, visiting a friend of mine whose wife is a, a librarian. And a book that stuck out to me, I saw in this little um, library that's been around since 1897 in that town, Carter, was 1776. It was July 3rd, the day that I was over there visiting them. And that was that's by right. David McCullough, who is an amazing author. He's actually written some tremendous biographies and some uh, tremendous books. And I also 
often recommend the book, The Wright Brothers. When people ask you about books, about business, about entrepreneurship and stuff like that, David McCullough's book about the Wright Brothers, I think it came out maybe seven or eight years ago, is the best book on entrepreneurship that you'll ever read. So I would just say, read that. And 1776 was also amazing. I've read almost everything that he's written. All right, Carter, let's get into it um, because the market not doing a whole heck of a lot. We have a new quarter. We have a much anticipated changing um, of the calendar here a little bit. And, you know, that first half was just absolute gangbusters onward charting. I think it was maybe on Monday. Um, you had some data about some of the biggest first quarter moves in the stock market in the S&P 500 and how we end up faring right in the in the second six months of a calendar year. Talk to us a little bit. You've talked about sure. this in the past, about how kind of arbitrary just the calendar year is. But we also yes. know that lots of people who move big pools of capital around get paid on the calendar year for the most part. And that's why we focus on those sorts of returns. But talk to us about some of the big starts of the year in the first half and how that ends up looking for the second half, at least by the data that you're looking at. That's right. Calendars are completely arbitrary. Let's say we extend it by one day or cut it yeah. back by one day. But- and the calendar is the calendar. People mark to market at the end of the year. Assets are are what they are, and it determines pay, it determines valuation, and so forth. But the the table here. So we just experienced our twelfth best first half, and there are two ways to look at this. I, I guess I would say uh, you just look at the bottom line and say, okay, well, it means that the second half is not all that exciting. That's one way to look at it. I guess. The other of two ways is to say that there's clearly either an historical pattern or a cannibalization pattern. So here's what I mean by historical. All of the ones back in the you know, 30s, 40s, 70s, right? The older ones, the second half was bad. Or in the modern, right, which you see here uh, to some extent green. But the real pattern, I think, is that notice the bigger you were in the first half, then the second half has a problem, which is to say that's overeating, right? It's like you fed too much at the trough. And so, you know, the, the stomach is full. And I think that's not a circumstance we have here being up, call it 16%. But certainly in those other years, uh, that was the case. The top five, right? The second half was red, negative. So look, you could take this with a grain of salt, but yeah. Um, when we sent it out to clients, we had no comments, no judgments. We just said for your cork board, meaning it would be nice to have this as one makes their decisions. But it's worth noting, and I think we've got two more tables here, that this is not the circumstance um, with the top 10 for the other two major aggregates. So this is the top 10. The reason I did top 12, because this year was not in the top 10. But if we look at the top 10 for the S&P, we see that it's fairly muted in the second half. But now look at the NASDAQ composite, right, which is the entire NASDAQ. And yes, in the two biggest years um, and in the top, we're in the top three here with a 32% gain. The two biggest of all, of course, 75 and 83, you had a negative second half. But the mean and median statistics are still green and firmly so at yeah. seven and plus 12%. Now the NASDAQ 100, of course, is where this is the best ever seen. And the question now, it's really just jump ball. Does that mean it gets even more, as was the case in 1998? Or is this going to be like 1987, where it was negative? But again, there's no way around this. The median and mean are green, and yeah. definitively so. 
Yeah, no doubt. Um, you know, it's interesting. We're going to spend a lot of time on market call and on the tape and, and, and talk about, you know, really some, some concrete ways this is over the next few weeks, how we think the best ways of making money in the markets is going to be because, um, you know, I, I really dug in, in, in the second quarter thinking that a lot of those gains in the, in the first quarter, um, didn't make a lot of sense to me, except for the fact that you had this kind of, you know, reflect, you know, reflective action from, you know, 2022, which was a very orderly sell-off for the most part. I think we could agree on that, right? It was just a series mm-hmm. of lower highs um, and lower lows, and it seemed to crescendo in October. But some of the biggest names in the market were still making 52-week lows in the first week of January, and then it was just off to the races with, I think, a lot of excitement about the, the switch and zero COVID um, in China. And we're going to spend some time you know, talking about China, but Carter, you know, how, how do you think about this? Is like when you, and you talk to a lot of institutional clients um, and you get a good sense for, I think, retail sentiment just through the stuff that you do. You know, you have hundreds, if not thousands of subscribers um, to your your work at, at Worth uh, car, uh, Charting, which is retail, you know, people and you, you people who watch you here, they watch you on CNBC. So, you know, these are two different sorts of mindsets. But for me, you know, I, I find myself like the calendars are important to me sometimes because I, I had a, a pretty decent Q1 the way I was trading the macro. But then I dug into some of the biggest stories. OK, and they just destroyed me in Q2. And so sure. they, now here I am. I've had a really bad trading period and I got to figure out how to get some of it back here. Th- talk to me about the psychology of that. Sometimes does it make sense? And I know you don't care about fundamentals. I got tripped up by focus too much on the fundamentals and and really the divergence between, you know, kind of rational thought as it relates to them. And now I feel like there's got to be some sort of reset in that as we get into, let's say, Q3, maybe into Q4. Well, if you just when there's studies on how long you typically go without a, a sort of seven to 10 percent sell off. We had one this year, of course, uh, but we haven't had anything now in a bit. The, 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 I guess the issue is this, um, at least let me see for my part. I always have longs and shorts, right? I, I don't think, and look, most people, a lot of people just don't want a short, uh, but you have to have, I think, exposure on both sides. And that uh, not only keeps you balanced to some extent on the P&L on the ledger, but it if you're just long or you're just short, you have a way, at least I can speak for myself, of saying I've got to press this when it's going against you. And that's often always wrong right? Because uh, you dig in and you believe and so forth. So by being hedged, uh, whether it's with options or having an equal amount of longs and shorts, or you don't have to be beta neutral and dollar neutral as a, a pure uh, hedge fund would be. But um, I do think it's important because then you you don't get too caught up, right, in any one thing or any one view, because that that is very dangerous. Yeah. Well, I, I that's, that was my problem in Q2. And, um, you know, it, it's funny. It, it's, it, you know, for a lot of traders, um, you know, who get to make their decisions, change their mind, you know what I mean, on the DL, however they want to do it, um, you know, like that's kind of how I always lived, you know, before I ever stepped foot on on CNBC and started podcasting and everything. And it's just hard because, you know, when you articulate, let's say, a thesis, you know, on, on something, it's really hard to kind of change your mind when you're out there and doing a show like Fast Money or doing Market Call every day or doing on the tape. So, you know, I've tried to kind of stick to my guns. But by the same token, you know, we, we don't put ourselves out there as you know, like someone's, you know, investment advisor or broker or hedge fund manager or whatever. And, and, and you know, 
I think that it's important for people to make their own decisions about this and, and, and actually take in a lot of differing sorts of views. So um, I dug in a little hard here. I got to dig my, dig my way out um, a little bit. Carl, let's talk about the major indices, though, here. Um, S&P 500, I, I know that you like to look at these on a relative basis sometimes versus, let's say, some of the other major indices. What are you seeing in the major indices and, and where might there be opportunities to get long and short of them versus let's say a pair because you do that really well sure well i mean it, it really i i think it will get down to this and i will tell you i have a view i don't know if it's going to work of course but it, it really is going to get down does one stay with that which has worked right staying with momentum trades which has largely been a technology uh, media large cap play or does one uh, go and find laggards, smaller cap, value, or industrials, or financials, or energy. It doesn't matter what you want to characterize. Uh, but it, it, securities, uh, individual equities, themes that have lagged. Because we know that things flip quickly. And when they do, right, uh, the momentum trade gets up. For instance, and, and this is important to say this because we're at the mid-year point. When we were starting the year, the number one most embraced theme by Wall Street, was to be overweight financials and banks. Yep. Okay, what happened? That didn't happen to go so well. The number one most disliked, stay away, not good theme was big tech. Look what happened. So uh, it can change underfoot. We know this. Uh, the question now is, let's just take those two. After, and look what's happened this year. You have the regional bank crisis and you have the associated with SVP and so forth. What about now? So the very thing that was the most hated, tech, is up the most. And the thing that was the most love is down the most. So should we now flip it around again? That's my hunch. Um, or just what, stay long Apple and, and Microsoft and, and to hell with everything else. I think that's overdue for what is a normal uh, mean reversion. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about um, some of these sorts of investing strategies away from trading um, a bit. And, you know, one of the last things that I think it was like March 30th and it was on a, on the tape podcast that we did um, with the compound and friends with Mike Batnick and, and Josh Brown and this guy and myself and Danny Moses. And, you know, it, it's funny, I, I was pretty bearish on tech, but my view at the time was like, listen, you know, if you're investing your capital, you know, even at that time where we just started to see money flow out of banks, like to your point, because we were in the middle of that regional banking crisis into, let's say, Microsoft and, and, and some of these large, you know, like tech mega cap names, it was sort of a flight to quality, right? It was the place where there weren't going to be major problems. And then the AI thing really kicked in. But my view was like, listen, take, a, take the same amount of money that you have to put in the market in Q2 and just on the close every day by the same amount of the QQQ. And, and that was my view. And the average price over the course of Q2, of the QQQ that closed, I think near 370 on the quarter, I think it was like 337 or something like that. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you would add a 10% gain. All right. So let's say for Q3, you did that same strategy, even if it's a hundred bucks a day, you know what I mean? Like on the close every day, like that sort of thing. And let's say we did have that 10% sell off. Let's, let's say we got back to, you know where you'd be? You'd be back at the average from Q2. Right. Like right. so. And then if you look at your 150 day moving average, right, it's down there at 310. So yep. like if, if this is the sorts of like and, and if you want to play themes, if you want to be exposed and you don't want to have the idiosyncratic risk and you. Yeah, we get it. You know, Apple and, and Microsoft are 12 percent each of the Nasdaq 100. That, so that makes them you know, you're disproportionately exposed to those names and the seven names make up 50 percent of the weight. But that's one way to do it. And then if you want to YOLO calls 
you know, because you think this product announcement that's coming out here is going to be big and in this name, you define your risk. Or if you have that position and it's gotten really big because it keeps performing, right? Because you have a NASDAQ that's up 30%, then maybe you think about buying some tactical hedges. Maybe they're puts, maybe it's, you know, stuff like that. So those right. are the sorts of things we're going to spend. Um, and, and we like to think that we do. We introduce trades on market call using futures. Um, we introduce trades ideas using um, options. We spent a lot of time on the technicals here that help inform a lot of that stuff that guy and I do. That is the only game for you, but that's kind of what we're trying to do here. So I just kind of wanted to lay that out there because I would even say with the QQQ at a 52 week high, not far from its all time highs, right? Made in late 2021. That's still the strategy that you should be using for most of this stuff, right? Like in general, you should just be dollar cost averaging, right? Uh, I mean, look, if you were to look at the profile of the average, and I'm not using that in a bad way, I'm just using the word average, uh, what they used to call a stockbroker, then they change it to registered rep, now they call it a financial advisor. The nomenclature changes, but people who are licensed to uh, buy and sell securities on behalf of clients. That business speaks to where it is now versus 10 and 20 and 30 years ago, or when I started. Uh, the, the, the broker, the representative was someone who transacted in securities, buying and selling for a customer. All of the big wirehouses from Morgan Stanley and Merrill and, and so forth, they don't want individuals who transact. They want asset gatherers and they want uh, men and women who can then put that money into uh, ETFs, but also house mutual funds and so forth. They don't want what the so-called stock jocks, the people who are buying and selling, they want to gather assets. And it's why, of course, and this is the ranks thing, that is a business where they'll pay you two and three times your trailing gross to move from one wirehouse to another, uh, because having the AUM is what really matters. And so that speaks to, I think, to some extent, what you're speaking to is that they're, the role of the FA, right, is to actually keep the individual away from his own account, so to speak, and yeah. do something prudent like cost averaging, let's not panic here at the lows, and to basically stay committed to the public equity market through various vehicles. Because we do know over time markets are built to go up. And that's a simple fact, speaking about going back to 1776, because America goes up over time. More Oreo cookies, more Gillette razors, more babies, and more success. Right. America is about success. Yeah. You know, it's funny um, that you say that when you just said America moves on. You know, so we were talking about D uh, David McCullough, who is, again, a fabulous author. He was also the guy who narrated a lot of the um, I'm totally spacing on his name. A guy who did baseball, did Civil War, did the Great mm -hmm. War. Um, uh, you know who I'm talking about, the documentarian, um, fabulous guy who does all this stuff on PBS. And he's the one who who um, narrated um, a lot of those um, bits. And so he's just got that voice. And I, I, I actually think he might have passed. I think he's was kind of well. well there's the one. Yeah, I know. There's the one who does all the Ken Burns. Yeah, Ken Burns. That, that's, oh, yeah. His, that, okay, that, okay. that's David that's McCullough. I mean, that's David. Okay. I, I couldn't think yeah. of Ken Burns. Yeah, um, very very soothing nice oh man yeah oh, that, those those things are those, those things are, are awesome um you know it's funny because like all those things you know they were streaming tv before we had streaming tv right like you would tune yes. in and you'd watch those things for two weeks straight so um let, let's talk about um this you know, let's talk about china a little bit um there's some headlines um we know that you know anthony blinken went over there secretary of state and and then biden got in all trouble for calling president and she a dictator and now we're sending over uh janet yellen the treasury secretary we have this kind of tit for tat with this um advanced chips as it relates to ai we still have all of the trump era um you know um you know uh tariffs and you know i mean things 
you know, it's not getting better anytime soon. And and these headlines, these dueling headlines, I think are interesting out of Bloomberg. She urges open supply chains after curb on key metal exports. China restricts export of chip, uh, chip making materials or metals um, in clash with the U.S. We also know that they have a stranglehold on a, a lot of the rare earth materials that go into um, EV battery. I mean, like this is not anything. It's a really complicated situation. And it's interesting, Carter. I want to throw up some charts. These are our charts, not yours. Stephen made the line. So thank you, uh, Rafis, on this. But on a day like today, when you see these headlines, look at the way, you know, uh, an FCX, so, you know, um, a copper producer, look at the way Letter X, uh, US Steel, or Alcoa AA, look at, they, look at the way they act here. Now, these charts, you know, the letter FCX, not horrible. I mean, I'm just curious. I mean, I, I think, you know, you see what, what I see. You, you see that. Sure too. Yeah, I mean, it's just sort of biding yeah. its time. Yeah, biding its time. Let's 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 move over to the letter X, um, which looks you know maybe a little different. Maybe that's a little head or, head and shoulders. Is that a turn? Do you use a head and shoulders? Is that something? Because I want to I want to spend a second here. If you mm -hmm. look at the middle part of this chart, you could say that that was a perfect textbook head and shoulders, right? And now is there a is there ability to make a head and shoulder? Like, are we making a right shoulder here on what was already a head and shoulders? If you look and, and you go back, you know, to a year out, is that something that my eyes are just playing tricks on me here a little no, bit? Or is that I, I mean, the, the patterns again, the original uh, book writers, they were uh, desperate and, and rightly so to have people believe. And so when you are trying to show to another untrained eye or on uh, sort of uh, uneducated in this matter, that this pattern we've seen, this uh, sequence is repeating, well, then you go and name it um, to capture the imagination. We, in the modern era, they started with brick, right? Brazil, and, and then they have fang. This is marketing, that's all it is, right? Uh, and so you, if it does look like, well, my God, that looks like my husband's head and shoulders, or that looks like my wife's head and shoulders, that looks like a cup and handle in the goddamn cupboard. It, it was some way to say, hey, look, don't you see? But they are legitimate reversal formations. And uh, the question is, is the strength of the sort of the June, uh, early July period, does it leave U.S. Steel back at a difficult level? It does. It's a big move, right? 20 or thereabouts up to 25 uh, and overhead supply comes into play. So um, whether it has to play out in textbook head and shoulders fashion, to some extent that already happened, right? Because you have the April shoulder and then it plunges in May and June. And now we're sort of uh, sort of something else, but uh, buy, sell or hold, I guess it gets down to that. I'm a seller. Yeah. So um, it, it, it kind of feels that way a little bit because the Chinese are also stimulating. They're trying to support you know, the currency, it's just not doing a whole heck of a lot. I mean, you know, so it's some, something that feels like it's going to be a bit of a headwind. Um, and I definitely think it was a tailwind in Q1 here. Um, I want to talk about another name. And I find this really interesting, Carter, because there haven't been too many new sort of products in the social media space um, in a very long time. TikTok really obviously um, did a number on Snap and did a number on Instagram. And, and again, those were, um, you know, two two you know, properties that really, I think we're consuming much of the attention of, of, of most people who follow the space for uh, a handful of years. Now, all of a sudden, Meta, you know, with Twitter, you know, is, 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 is private now and obviously not doing particularly well. And we just know that from some of the disclosures that they've had from a financial standpoint. But at its lows last year in November, I mean, this stock was down nearly 80 percent from its 2021 highs. And look at the just the steepness and the gaps here. 
um, of this move back. It's up, you know, more than 200 percent, up 150 percent of the year. And they're they're basically going to be rolling out their their Twitter clone here. And, you know, one thing that I think a lot of folks who follow the space you know, know pretty clearly, and this company has been public now for, what, 10, 11 years, um, that one of the things that Facebook or, or Meta is really good at doing is copying things that are working here. And so the stock today, you know, is up 3 percent, is up a little bit more. How do you think about something like this? It's a known known. There's not going to be any data about the success of this. They might in a month, you know, put out how many you know downloads they had, and the, you know what I mean. But well, we're not going to know anything about the monetization. We're not going to know anything about market share. We're not going to know anything about anything, Carter. How do you think about a move like this? And then we want to back this thing out. Look at it on a five-year basis. You, you look where it is. It's back. Yeah, to- let's back it out. So yeah. I mean, the first thing that is, it speaks to the vagaries of valuation and the notion that something is worth anything. How does one explain intellectually? It was at 300, it drops to 85, and then it jumps back to 300. They, they, they got that much better, they were that much Price uh, overshoots and undershoots, we know this, but that's the point of trying to study price because while this has been maybe hard to cope with on a price only basis, it's been impossible to cope with on a fundamental basis because intellectually, how do we square that off? What they were, they were good, then they weren't good. And they, I mean, you know, it, so the question is now in its totality, something that could be such a great winner, but then in turn could be such a disaster, right? Dropping from uh, what, almost 400 to 85 and now has recovered to this level. Is this a point at which capital should be? pulled away from the circumstance, the opportunity, or added to? I think it's the former. I'd be reducing. Uh, yeah. Do you have to sell it all? No, but this is a big move to a difficult level. Yeah. And let's look at, um, you were on Fast Money last week, and we were talking about Apple. And, you know, so you could say that that big move to a difficult level in January to that kind of 183, that prior all-time high from late 2021, but it blew through there. This is the largest equity on the planet, $3 trillion market cap. Um, I think you would say that at least we get a kind of check back mm-hmm. to that kind of breakout level. But what would what would a what would a target be, Carter? And and here's another question for you. You you just mentioned a couple minutes ago that you know there's plenty of data, the longest periods that we've gone without a you know seven to ten percent. Um, decline. Would you expect some of these large, you know, like market cap companies like Apple to lead to the downside if we were to have a 10% correction or would they play catch up? Because that was kind of the situation in late 2021, you know what I mean? Into mm-hmm. early 2022, that, that some of the largest names like Apple and Microsoft didn't lead. But when they played catch up, we were clearly went into a bear market in 2022. That's right. And also remember, they led on the way down at the back half of 2022 into January this year. Um, but the moving above a former high, we, I think we might have Microsoft here and we can yeah. toggle uh, back and forth. But Microsoft got to the high and backed away. Apple went through the high. And I think it's important to look at these actually because they're so similar as one asset. They are, in fact, basically 15% of the S&P. And we have a, a basket here. You'll see this on the next iteration. So what this chart Coming up is it's a, it's a basket of it. If we don't have it, that's fine too. But oh, there it is. So this is simply plotting those two stocks, Apple and Microsoft, uh, equal weight, um, and making a chart, which is to say as though it were one security. This one security happens to be about 15% of the S&P, and it alone would be the biggest sector with healthcare just right behind it. So the question is, has this broken out? No. 
right? It is returned to a former high, and now it's in the process of contending with the high. And so in order to definitively break out, right, you want to consolidate back and fill, back away, and basically work off the overbought condition of the past six months. And then, in principle, you're in a better position to have a more enduring move higher versus what I think this is, which is a false move higher. And you notice today Apple is on the ropes. Microsoft, uh, again, never could make it through the high. But I think it's right to look at these as one security because there's there's other great enterprises, we know that, that make up the S&P 500 and the Russell 1000. But these are the two, right, yeah. that have the maturity, the history, the, what is known as mature growth, the balance sheets, and the imagination of the people. Yes, yeah, no doubt about it. All right, so let, let's talk about a couple of things um, more before we get out of here. I, I, I think that this headline, the story in Barron's kind of caught me because we've been going back and forth between this housing market. We've spent a lot of time talking about home builders and the valuation, the supply demand dynamics and yada, 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 okay? Um, this article was interesting. Um, you know, it was talking about the housing market and and, and just kind of the, the health of it and what that means for the Fed. You could probably throw the stock market of the NASDAQ in there too. It just makes the Fed's job that much harder, right? When you think that they're trying to, you know, raise interest rates to cool inflation, cool down the economy a little bit. When you have risk assets move like this um, and then housing, which is a, a big part of most Americans, uh, you know, homeowners at least of, of their net worth, um, you know, they feel pretty confident, right? So well, you wanted to take a look at the IYR, the, the real estate ETF, which has a lot of REITs in it. And that looks very, very different than the XHB or the ITB. So walk me through this thought process here again, because, you know, for me, I, I've spent too much time kind of focusing on fundamentals and how I think I have an edge in this year. Um, and that's clearly not been the case here. And maybe I have to resort a little bit um, to the technicals here, Carter. Right. So let's just for fun. I mean, we know that real estate is a, is a, is a huge part of uh, employment in this country. Uh, we know it's a, it's the major asset class. Really, it's really English common law. There's real estate and everything else. It's, it's the only thing you can borrow against in a, in a legitimate way, even though you can hawk your stocks, we know. Um, but the point is, this is a very disparate group. I mean, in a tower company like American Tower, SBAC, or CCI, which is utility type, is very different than an office building that has nobody in it, right? Highly leveraged, or which in turn is very different um, from a storage REIT, uh, whether it's uh, warehouses or storage for uh, data centers, and in turn different from apartment buildings, in turn different from shopping centers and so forth. But what we have, of course, is this very liquid IYR. It's the iShares U.S. Real Estate ETF, and it captures all of them as weighted. And what I see, and that's, again, first person singular, is the following, those lines. And so the green arrow is a judgment. You could say, yeah, that's exactly wrong. Carter, it's going to hit that downward sloping line and then go lower, not higher here. Okay, that's what makes a market. But what appeals to me is the the day-to-day -day relative strength. Um, we know that the S&P dipped um, uh, over the past weeks before reasserting itself just at the end of last week, and IYR was going up the whole time. So I think you have all the makings of something that is nascent, early, and likely to continue. And of course, it's a yield story to some extent. Yeah, so talk to me a little bit about, um, and I'm not asking to kind of show me any any pictures on this, but just the the relative performance versus like the XHB. Is that something with the IYR that that you track? Are there any mm -hmm. correlations? 
regulations uh, in general that that are kind of rule of thumb or so because again you know a lot of those home builders have just been going up 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 and um this one has been in a very clear descent but it looks like your point it's becoming a bit more constructive we're starting to see a series of higher lows yeah so and there's not a lot of correlation between this and home builders right a couple of things home builders are mostly small they're one or two lennar and, and i guess uh, dr that are that are fairly large cap but there are a lot of small home builders and it um it's still a very uh when i say small small part of the public traded market a great percentage of the home building in this country is done at the private level right they're not can publicly traded REITs. And so homes are being built all over the place, as we know. The the question, I guess, is it right to favor something uh, that is perennially underperforming? Because you're getting to more of a bond-like circumstance, not quite the same as utilities, but the IYR with its yield relative to the S&P is almost always an underperformer. Yeah. Um, interesting, though, uh, if you look at the relative performance of the IYR to the XLU, right, to utilities, that also is uh, very developmental. So of these two areas, REITs and utilities, I like REITs better and IYR uh, would be the vehicle to use. All right. Well, we're going to track that one again. We're going to focus on some ways to make some money, even on the long side here, people, um, early in Q3 of 2023. All right. It's that time of the day. Normally where Guy Adami gets very excited, but Guy is off um, today. On Thursdays, we get a preview, but it's not Thursday today. It's Wednesday because it's a holiday shortened week, but we're going to get a preview of John Butters. He's a, sir, a senior earnings insight analyst over um, at FactSet of his earnings insight blog that drops on FactSet um, every Friday morning. You can sign up for it. You can get it in your inbox. I certainly do and have been reading it um, for years. And to this week, I think this is really interesting, Carter. And, and again, um, you know, he's talking about this is – market strategists on the sell side, the data that FactSet, um, you know, like puts together here and tracks here of the bottoms up price target for the S&P 500. Okay. Right now, the data that they collect, it's about 48.16. That would be just above the all-time high of the S&P 500 that was made in January of 2022. Based on this target, industry analysts believe the index will see an 8% price increase in the next 12 months versus Monday's close of 44.55. Um, I think this is really interesting on the sector level. The energy um, up 19% healthcare of 15% sectors are expected to see the largest price increases. The consumer discretionary up 2% and information tech up 4% sector is expected to see the smallest price increases after hitting a low of 44.62 on November 9, 2022. The bottom up target price has increased by almost Eight percent. So, talk to me a little bit about that. How you think about this exercise? I know how you think about this exercise, but explain um, to the viewers of, of these price targets and the like. Here, I do think it's interesting to track them from a sentiment standpoint because usually they're actually chasing their tails, right? They're not telling you anything that is particularly instructive. So, I'm curious how you think about this sort of data, Carter. Right, so it's important to note this is the bottom up, right? So strategists are uh, economists, for lack of a better thing, either trained as such or they've just assumed those roles have been hired to do it at major sell-side firms. I was, a, I started as a strategist um, doing fundamentals and technicals in 1989. Um, their price targets, and there's only probably 15 to 20 uh, sort of strategists, are done from 
the top down, looking at GDP and looking at and extrapolating revenue growth and coming up with number. The bottom up is different, right? These are individual security analysts who are paid to know companies very, very well and to come up with price targets for those individual equities. And this taking them all and working back up gives you a higher number. Now, typically the bottom analyst earnings estimates and price targets, we'll start with that, are typically revised down 1% a month, going back 50, 60, 70 years, uh, price targets. And so there's always a, a bit of euphoria uh, from this, and you see it here. It's much higher than the strategy. And the reason that is, is because, remember, of the 500 stocks in the S&P, the average one is has about 10 analysts cut rate. Some have 50 and some have two. But you've got 5,000 ratings. And of those, only 5 to 7% at any given time are sells. Mm -hmm. And so basically, Wall Street has price targets that are higher because if you put a sell on everything, who's going to buy it? They're in the business of commissions. And so this is pretty straightforward. Uh, you know, they're, they're rules to get the, 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 get the job done, so to speak. They want the public to buy and sell the securities that they either have done investment banking deals on or uh, otherwise. So these um, individual bottoms-up targets are invariably high. Um, and while it's, I guess anything's possible, could we get to 4820 uh, as this is arguing for? Uh, sure. Uh, but just know that if you look at this number and a rolling 12-month basis and then re-look at it, at the end of that period, it typically is revised down about 1%. Yeah. And, and that that's such a great point. And, and Butters tracks a lot of that data, the, the, the rate in which analysts are taking down their estimates, right, mm -hmm. um, you know, over the course of, of – uh, uh, over a quarter and we track that um, on market call also as John comes out with that data. So the bottoms up um, stuff is really good. On, on the sector level, I do think it's interesting though, when you see consumer discretionary and information tech um, only except uh, two and 4% respectively. Well, information tech has led a lot of the gains this year. And so analysts are now probably getting less excited about getting too far above their skis because they were chasing their tails a little bit on the way up with tech. And then if you look at energy, which is really underperformed this year and healthcare, right? You see them that they're the highest um, you know, expected gainers um, over that next 12 month period. So to me, that's all really interesting stuff from Butters and, and great to track. All right. Last point, you know, this is kind of funny. I couldn't think of Ken Burns's name. So my kids, Carter, when they were young, now they're 20 and 17, but they went to um, an elementary school in the West Village and we lived on Horatio Street. And the elementary school is on uh, Horatio Street. It was about a 10 minute walk. Um, East and I used to take them as you take your uh, young kids to school uh, in the city. And, you know, it's interesting. My kids in like the first grade at their school, it's a, city, uh, a school called City and Country, and they play, they do a lot of blocks. And one of the biggest projects they do all year is they build the Brooklyn Bridge. They study it, they go on it, you know, they do trips and they study the history of it. This is the first grade, and then they build it with blocks. And so, in Ken Burns' very first documentary, okay, it was on the building of the Brooklyn Bridge. And in a part of that, it was I think it was done in the 70s, um, they go into city and country school. My kids obviously were not there. They were there in the in the late aughts, that sort of thing. And they show the kids building with blocks this, the, the thing. And all the parents would show this documentary, at least a bit with city and country, to their kids. I'm watching it with my kids on a Sunday afternoon. On a Monday morning, I'm walking my kids across Horatio Street. And who do you think we see? We literally bumped 
right into Ken Burns, walking west as we were walking east. And it was probably like an early iPhone that I had. I took a picture with them. I told him this story. He thought it was the weirdest thing. Is that a weird story or what? I feel it bad. It's a good one because it's for life too because you got the photo. That's fine. Yeah, I, well, I, I got to find it because I now I have 3 billion photos on all in my iCloud account here. But all right, listen, uh, sorry for that droning on with that story here. Mm -hmm. I just thought that was kind of interesting though. So, um, so you guys have some homework. Um, 1776 from Dave McCullough. And if you're interested in entrepreneurship, read the Wright Brothers. It was a fascinating uh, read. Obviously, take a look at Carter's Worth on Worth Charting. What does guys say? No emojis with hearts, just charts. Um, so we appreciate you going the distance as Guy is out on vacation today, Carter. Obviously, thank you to FactSet uh, Financial Data and Analytics powered by tomorrow they are also our data provider and a great partner of ours so thank you to them we are not going to be here on market call tomorrow we will be back next week carter thanks a lot have a great long weekend and we'll see you all uh early next week we do have you know on the pace uh, on the tape podcast that's going to be dropping tomorrow with guy danny moses and myself so please check that out so thanks everyone bye